Chris, if there was ever an emergency podcast, I think this is the definition of it. It's an emergency podcast for an emergency board of trustees meeting. Yeah, we long rumored. Uh, you know, me and you have been chasing potential Friday meeting with what we expected to be about for several days. Merry we Christmas. were also we were also chasing a Friday a Friday meeting like three Fridays ago too, but you know. yeah, this has happened before. But yeah, yeah, I was right. dismissive of it a few weeks ago. This one I was not near as dismissive. Even when people told me no, 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 I kept chasing meetings. Well, so for this episode of On the Bench, we're about to dive into what this emergency board of trustees meeting uh, entails. I think you guys can probably I have a pretty good idea of that already before we get into it. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the early signing period for Florida State and what was a uh, some nuance, like a, a good class, but it had potential to be uh, an elite one, and we fell short of that. So we're going to talk about that. I would implore people to go ahead and listen to the early signing day show that uh, the X's and Knowles guys and Zach did yesterday. Um, that's up on our YouTube channel. And you can, you can listen to that there, but Zach covers recruiting really closely and has a pretty good pulse of what's going on. So you know his opinion carries a lot of weight with that of those developments and there's an hour of content for you guys to consume there. We will talk about it some here before we get any further. Just want to give a shout out to our sponsors for this episode. Uh, we have Chattanooga whiskey. Uh, Tis the season to enjoy spirits, holiday spirit. Chattanooga whiskey does an exceptional job uh, in the craft distillery game. Uh, their whiskeys are top shelf, like top of the line. Uh, exceptional. Their 11, uh, 111 proof cast strength stuff is exquisite. One of the best values out there. Their rye whiskey, I'm not a huge rye fan, and, and they they nail it. It's really, really good. Uh, so, yeah, Chattanooga whiskey, a great Christmas gift uh, for whiskey lovers out there who want to try something a little different that doesn't quite taste like your standard bourbon. Uh, CW, for sure, would be highly recommended. Also, the Turner Group, uh, they sponsor our buyer, Sinone. Chris, are we buying or Sinoning uh, ACC litigation being talked uh, about tomorrow? Talked, buying a whole 100%. I expect it to be talked about. Now, actual action, eh, I'm a little bit in the or range on that, but I think we get pretty close to getting there, uh, if we not will, getting there. Uh, that's a hard buy. Also, uh, the battles, and uh, they need your support. Uh, obviously, um, you know, yesterday I know it didn't go the way a lot of people wanted, and, and the idea of uh, pulling out your funds, um, you know, everyone's entitled to do their own thing, but <laughs> to, to defund, to defund uh, the entity that is supposed to be uh, helping you uh, build a roster. I don't know if that's going to have the exact uh, effect that you want, but to each their own. All right, so let's get into it, Chris. Emergency Board of Trustees meeting has been called. And the expectation, and, and so for context, okay, we've been chasing this for a few days now. Um, ESPN reporter Andrea Adelson showed up yesterday to cover signing day in, in practice, and Chris was like, why? You know, asked Andrea, like, why, why are you? Here and I asked her something. I think, I, I, think I whispered to you, Did you ask about Friday? <laughs> so, yeah. You there, Sanon? Uh, Sanon. Oh. There I am. There. Sorry, I'm, I'm across the house. Uh, they can hear me though. Uh, you just won't be able to hear me. Um, okay. But, but alas, it's something we've been chasing, and we're just joking about Andrea uh, being there because. Uh, because our antenna were we were on full alert for potential uh, national you know reporters uh, swooping in here uh, because of what had uh, what we expected to occur, what we thought could occur. So anyway, Thursday morning here as we're recording this podcast, Chris is about to head out to practice. I'm doing some final finalization of early signing period stuff. Um, we get an email from FSU announcing a board of tre- board of trustees meeting an emergency one they have to. Uh, by law, give 24 hours you know, advance notice of that. So today was going to be the day if it was going to happen on Friday. Also, uh, Florida State Sports Information Director Derek Satterfield uh, sent out uh, an email as well to the media members who cover the football program. So and not the reason that's worth bringing up is that it pertains to athletics. So let's because obviously board of trustee meetings can be about all encompassing things involving the university and solely athletics, but for the athletic side to be sending it out, it pertains to athletics. So yes, very a very clear indication of of what to expect, at least in a broad sense. Chris, what can we report on right now that we know or believe Friday's meeting will entail? Yeah, so it's Friday, 10 a.m. virtual meeting. If you want to have uh, any. Um, Public comment, you have to be there in person, which is at the Westcott. 
it's a little gathering room. It's usually not very populated outside of a few media members. Um, this won't be our first time attending one in the last few months. As for the actual reason for the meeting, the belief that I have based on what I've talked to people about here in the last week or so, and obviously what they've been building to throughout this entire process, is it pertains to the ACC grant of rights and ultimately an exit strategy for FSU getting out of the Atlantic Coast Conference. Um, now, how far can they go with that? There's belief that there's some form of litigation that they can do to essentially ask for a external party, a non-FSU party, a non-ACC party to take a look at the grant of rights and see if it's basically enforceable and if FSU has an out with that. I believe there will be some form of litigation, at least discussed, that pertains to that. I don't know how much action will be taken in the moment, but I believe they're working towards that. It would not shock me if they do get to the point where they actually go forward with actual litigation action agreed upon by the BOT. Um, the goal ultimately is for FSU to exit this conference. Now, the variables that are in action with all this and always have been in action with this is the cost of doing so. Obviously, the grant of rights is thought to be highly ironclad, has been used in the past to describe it, enforceable at a high level, and extremely costly if it is enforced at its full tilt. Now, the goal is obviously for FSU to find a way out where it doesn't cost that amount of money because funding that would be extremely difficult. Uh, and that's true for anybody under the sun. You know, it, it all of this discussion results in a bunch of other questions. You know, well, if FSU is leaving, where are they going? They have a home. I don't believe they would be going forward as aggressively as I expect them to continue to push as they have for months and almost two years at this point since they really started diving in on the grant rights if they did not believe they have a viable option available. I believe within the more athletic center, the belief is they do have viable options available for where they would land for their next conference sitting. So to answer that question, just matter of factly, yes, I believe they have a place to go. Always have, always will. What are you smiling about, Brendan? By Orsonone the picture I used to announce the board trustees meeting. Uh, I'll buy it. You got Jim Phillips looking miserable and continuing to make any comments about a 13-0 team in his league being left out of college football playoff or doing anything to assist his league in acquiring more money because of how bowl payouts work. And you got Mike Norvell ecstatic over getting a trophy that pretty much since the moment he raised it, not a whole lot has really gone great over here because of the fact of the CFP snub and so on and so forth. Do we think, this is just spitball in here, do we think that there will be an element of like the ACC dropping the proverbial ball in you getting into the playoff? Like, is that at all in play of like what the discussion points will be? I don't know. I'm interested uh, how much they kind of lay out on the table versus how much they just say we're going to take action. We'll let what we do next kind of speak for itself. Um, but yeah, I think there's definitely a sentiment of that. I think there's a belief among some power brokers within the university and tied to the university and those that make some of the money moved mountains around these parts that the ACC clearly had no real interest in helping FSU along with getting to the college football playoff. In addition to their TV partner, the ACC's TV partner, their ESPN being primary culprit of basically a smear campaign against FSU that made sure they weren't going to make the playoffs and ensured that a school like Alabama in a conference where they have much more money on the line with them and moving forward in the future making sure they got in. So I'm sure those are some ideas that are there. But now, again, when you're doing legal things, they kind of have to be more fact and there. So, like, I don't know how much they swim in those waters. But do I think that's a motivating factor from an emotional standpoint of moving forward and becoming even more aggressive in attempting to exit the conference wholeheartedly? Yes. The <laughs> So what's interesting, you mentioned, so if there is, if it ends up coming to fruition, what we anticipate tomorrow, and that's, announcing some sort of, some sort of litigation or the uh, uh, beginning stages of going through with that against the ACC. You mentioned ESPN, Chris, and that is a business partner with the conference that you're in. Um, worth noting, I don't know how much we talked about this on the podcast, just given everything else we've been covering for the last week or so, but Florida's uh, attorney general announced that they were launching an antitrust investigation into the college football playoff. Oh, it can be convoluted sometimes in, in much brighter legal minds than than mine, or just mine's brighter than mine in, in general, especially when I'm really tired and, and punchy like how I am right now. I uh, can probably like connect dots more so than than, than I can, but you know, the college football playoff, ESPN, and ACC are all technically different entities, but they are all business partners together, as is Florida State. And so all these things are kind of getting cross-maneuvered uh, to each other in the sense that like I think Florida State is, or the state of Florida on, on Florida State's behalf, are kind of uh, maneuvering to 
you know, have some sort of pressure on all of these entities. Now, ESPN is the only entity to our knowledge that has not kind of, or not expected to like directly go into the crosshairs of, of what Florida State's aiming to do. But by and large, like these are all related to some extent or another. Is that yeah, you have reasonable? Governor, you have Governor DeSantis freeing up a million dollars in the state budget regarding potential litigation. You have Senator Rick Scott writing multiple times a bill here in Cog in the CFP committee. You have, uh, I believe it's Ashley Moody. And, and I believe I believe he will, by the way, will continue that. This isn't just... You're speaking on Rick Scott? On Rick Scott, yes. Sorry. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, I have a reason to believe that they are at least exploring to continue to, to push this. This isn't just an optics thing for them. That's part of it. Same thing with, with Governor DeSantis and same thing with, like, the Attorney General as well. Like, this is all, like, PR stuff, but I do believe, like, there are teeth to all of these as well, as well to, to some extent or another. Yeah, I, I mean, ultimately, I think the play with ESPN and regarding the CFP and everything that went down with that is the belief that maybe was there some form of collusion pertaining to uh, basically what I termed a smear campaign against FSU earlier, or at least a campaign to diminish FSU. I think that would be hard to prove, but it would be interesting if we get there. But yeah, I, I think some of that's, you know, legal glad handing uh to state constituents, but also I think there is a degree of understanding that like it's a state university there and that university's viewpoint got wronged and they're going to, yeah, I expect there to continue to be some push there. The fact that it hasn't waned and we're three weeks removed from that Sunday makes me think that there are people that intend to continue forward with that Rick Scott being one that you specifically mentioned. And Florida state being in the state's capital, um, there are connections, right? Yeah. And uh, all colleges, all universities, especially at the state level, are tied to the state in a lot of ways from a political standpoint. You know, John Thrasher, former president here, had a ton of political ties. And that was one of those things. I don't think that Richard McAuliffe and Michael Alford and those sorts that currently are in the hierarchy of running FSU are shy of making sure they have friends in that department. Uh, one thing that I think we should talk about as a refresher, I think a lot of our audience, Chris, is probably pretty privy to this. Uh, we've talked about it before, but you always have new listeners. And I think it's always worth talking about like the finances of what, what this could, this battle, if it, if it does go to that point, like what, what it would look like. And there's multiple like fees that you're talking about and that'll be up for dispute. There is the exiting the conference fee and then there's grant of rights. Uh, will you do yes. a crash course for people on, on those, please? Uh, been a while since I looked at the exiting fee, but it used to be like three times the uh, current annual payout to a school. So say it's forty-five million, it would be one hundred twenty-five million, right? I have that, or I'm sorry, one hundred thirty-five million on that math. So that's an example of that. And then you have the grant of rights, which which real quick, FSU number, could get FSU could get out of the ACC. The exit fee is not yeah. the concern. I mean, that's a lot of money still, but that's not the concern. The grant of rights is a bigger issue because ultimately that's what locks up your media rights, which means your long-term pay over the extension of a contract. The current FSU ACC contract goes to 2036. So based on the grant of rights, FSU's media rights are owned by the ACC through 2036. If they were to leave for another television partner, another conference, their media rights would still be owned by the ACC. It's what the grant of rights says in a simplistic way. Um, now, getting out of that, the exact Im amount that would be has never been truly stated definitively. Um, Carolyn Egan, who is an attorney for FSU, she's previously talked about the exit fee in board of trustee meetings. The actual uh, grant of rights fee has never been, to my knowledge, definitively stated as a dollar figure. The belief is it would be immense, a ton. Um, yeah, I've heard half billion before. I don't know if that's correct. I don't know if it would be more or less than that, but it would be a great deal of money. That combined with the exit fee is so much money that like FSU from a booster's private funding within the university standpoint, it would be costly for them to do. Now we've heard about private equity, things of that sort discussed. I think ultimately FSU's hope is either a negotiated down fee or some form of breaking the contract in one form or another. And there, there's multiple ways contract can be broken. I think half the conference would have to leave. That's probably not going to happen. Landing spots for half of the conference probably do not exist. There's too many teams in this conference that would not have a better place to go to in the sense of financial incentives to go there. And the ACC is already backfilled in preparation for a school like FSU or Clemson or North Carolina, so on and so forth, leaving by adding the Cal, the Stanford, the SMU. That allows them from a TV contract standpoint with ESPN to remain above a threshold number that they have to have for their current contract. So that's another way the contract can't be broken. So yeah, uh, I think that's why you are reaching the point where you're 
moving forward with legal proceedings where you're hoping that others can investigate ways to see, is this enforceable? Is this allowed? FSU, the grant of rights is not something that you can bring home with you. So FSU has gone to investigate grant of rights around a half dozen times in the last couple of years, from what I understand. And, you know, they, they believe they have a great handle on it, that they have a great read on it. The issue is it's somewhat ambiguous and it's a lot of legal jargon. So ultimately, it has to be decided by a third party, a non-interested uh, party. So not the ACC, not FSU. One last thing on this, uh, because a lot of this, well, two, okay, two last things. Uh, the first question is you mentioned you don't think FSU would be doing this without having some idea of a landing spot. I Correct. can't. I can't. I, I skimmed past it earlier. I, we should probably talk about that, though. I've long believed it's the Big Ten. I don't know that matter of factly, but I've long believed it's the Big Ten. I believe the Big Ten would have interest in FSU joining them, and FSU would have interest in joining the Big Ten. Um, yes, there's a multitude of reasons that make sense for each party. Other options would be the SEC. That just given what you're potentially like, you're again, you're going. You are very likely going to have to be careful how I phrase things. You are potentially going to legal combat against their business partners. Right. And Greg Sankey has, and you can only believe half of what everybody says in these situations, but Greg Sankey has kind of openly stated that they're not aggressively pursuing additions to their conference at this moment. That's probably a half truth. I mean, I I think they would add people. I've long thought that the SEC would have a great deal of interest in UNC if the ACC starts kind of falling apart, dissolving, going the way of the Pac-12 this past year. Uh, I think that I think the SEC would probably just from a footprint perspective, UNC, Virginia. Um, well, UNC is kind of a middle finger to the ACC. If you take them, you're taking essentially the one. You're killing the them. Of the you're, you're, yeah, you're you're stabbing them in the heart. It's like taking uh, USC and UCLA from the pack. Yeah, yeah, it's a death blow. Um, but I mean, frankly, if they lose Florida State, which like that, I mean, yeah, that's the road we're going down. It seems like that's also going to be a sizable. <laughs> I will say during a lot of this last 18, 24 months of kind of dealing with the potential of FSU exploring an exit, you know, we've believed they've had dancing partners. Now FSU's obviously been the most vocal and ruffled the most feathers, but you know, there, there's a belief that UNC has an interest in potentially departing the conference mm-hmm. because ultimately the conference is not going to pay schools enough to stay competitive with essentially 32 to 40 other schools and two major conferences. So UNC, Clemson's obviously one that's long been lumped in with FSU. And for whatever reason, Virginia has always been thrown in there. I think that's because it's an AAU type of university with prestige and in general actually has pretty good athletic programs outside of the ones that people really care about in the broad spectrum sense. Uh, you know, football obviously hasn't been great there, but they are good at a lot of sports and they do invest into their athletics. The other potential landing spot or I guess maybe even like a, like a bridge type of thing that's been rumored has been independence. Yeah, I don't I don't think so. Michael Alford, and again, people say half truths in this stuff, but Michael Alford has definitively come out and said that's not the intention. That's not yeah. the plan. I think that Big, was Big with, Ten is the uh, most likely. Was that with the athletic where he definitively said it? I believe so. I want to cite where it was, but I think it was the athletic. And it was a report two, three months ago. Around the same time as the private equity stuff became public. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what we're outlining or out outlining oh boy, for what's to come as it pertains to the exact you know details of tomorrow. I, I think what we're looking for here is like Chris and I are planning to go to the board of trustees meeting. It's virtual, but it would be good to, to be there. I think it's open to the public too. I mean, most board of trustees meetings are, but uh, you know, technically it is open to the public. I don't think they want a bunch of FSU fans coming to watch it. Like it's a, like open a, to public like a, for comment. Yeah, for comment. And you are allowed to. Um, to B- BOT has certain outlines. Like the people are like, why are they announcing it? I just want action. They legally have to announce that they're having a meeting. They have to allow for comment. They cannot mm-hmm. have it be essentially closed door. Yeah. That, that's there is an emergency procedure where they can get behind closed doors. But in general, there has to be some form or fashion within a meeting where public comment can be allowed, from what yes. I understand of those proceedings. Uh, so that's part of it. Uh, we will also, and again, that's at 10 o'clock. Uh, they will also put up their, uh, basically their agenda. minutes or their agenda coming up. Uh, I don't know if that'll be today or tomorrow. I forget what the email said, but they will be putting that up. So we'll have more clarity. It'll be like a PDF in the next 24 hours. It's 10 o'clock right now as we're recording this. So in 24 hours, now the meeting will be started. We'll have an idea of exactly what they'll be discussing tomorrow uh, at some point before then, either in the next I hour or next 23 hours. I do hope there is some form of action out of tomorrow's meeting just from a 
I feel like that's where we're at in this journey. Um, I, I think you can only have so many meetings, so many discussions before people grow tired of hearing it. Uh, kind of like boy cried wolf type of situation. But again, well, you're dealing with a massive financial situation where you need to have your ducks in order and make sure you're going about it in the right way. But I, I do think there's a degree of we've kind of reached the crossroads of this and it's probably time for some form or fashion of action or at least exploratory action. You know, it's funny. I was I was backing up out of my driveway and had this thought this morning as I was I was going to grocery store to pick up breakfast. Um, in-laws are in town, so I want to have breakfast stuff for everyone. Um, and I'm thinking, Chris, like as I'm backing up, uh, be, between signing day and just, you know, the, the rumors of what's now happening, but we didn't know that, you know, an hour and a half ago when I was when I was heading out to the store was like, you know, if action doesn't start happening, if there's not legitimate, like quantifiable progress towards responding to what what just happened to this athletic program and, and football program and, and town university, you know, three, three weeks ago, the snub. Uh, there will the angst like that's there that's palpable that people feel like towards outward entity entities is going to start being looked inward. Florida State fans are yeah. going to get mad at. We saw football that coaches. Yesterday. Yeah, that so that was kind of the impetus. I was like, but I'm connecting the two because I think that the angst is related to each other. Um, and it's like eventually you're going to be considered like the the boy who cried wolf if if action doesn't start being taken, um, and now action's being taken or seems to be so. Just interesting. It was a thought process I had this morning. Of like, all right, like it, it's about time to start, you know, marching orders, and and I think that's begun. Uh, that might transition us, Chris, unless you have anything else on it to talk about early signing period. Yeah, let's okay. do it. All right. all right. So FSU, as of again, ten o'clock Thursday morning, has the ninth ranked prep class nationally. It's, it's a actually top 10, it's class. ten. It's ten. Oh, did they did they fall down one. Well, the overall rank is ten. The composite rank is nine. So take it as you want. The overall includes. Marvin Jones Jr. and transfer. Rates, I believe so. I As someone yeah. who once butchered this like three signing classes ago and didn't read it correctly, I might probably not the best one to uh, to, to uh, be definitive on that. Regardless, top 10 class is where you're at right now. And that's good. It is legitimately the best class by far Mike Norvell has ever accumulated in his time at Florida State. It's your best class, I think, since 2017, which would have been the last class that Jimbo Fisher had, right? Yeah, um, that he actually so recruited. When he... Well, he <laughs> It was starting to, to not. Um, but uh, I digress. Blue chip ratio secured very, very confidently, uh, like easily to an extent, like a, you know, you're at 60 something percent blue chip ratio for this class. Skill positions, you're talking about one of the best tight ends in the country, one of the best quarterbacks in the country, one of the best running backs in the country, a good accumulation of wide receivers, offensive line recruiting, you know, not, not elite, but pieces. And then defensively, you're talking about a really good DB class. That's the positive, and that is the part where it's like you know, I don't want to lose lose sight of like there is there is progress in talent acquisition, uh, markedly so. You've gone from being late teens to early or low twenties in recruiting classes to now in the top ten. Like that, that is important. Uh, frustration and angst from the fan base and and deserved. I'm I'm not criticizing people for being frustrated. You you're entitled to feel how you feel, and I was frustrated covering things yesterday you had a chance to have an elite class and to get high odd NFL type of players, the guys who have chances to be Sunday players at a really high level, like a, a high probability. Uh, you weren't able to secure Jeremiah Smith, number one player in the country. He stayed with Ohio state. You lost Armando Blunt, five-star recruit. And that was expected. You lost KJ Bolden, the top player in your class. Um, and you weren't able to secure LJ McRae, who you were trying to make a, a push for. I think the, the biggest source of frustration, the Jeremiah Smith one you can rationalize, Chris, is that this now has become a trend, a pattern. You know, for it to happen two years in a row is concerning. For it to happen three years in a row, that makes it a trend. It's alarming now. And that's, you have been unable to hold on to either your best or your second best player in three classes in a row on signing day. You've been poached Travis Hunter. You've been poached Keldrick Falk. And now you've been poached KJ Bolden as well as Armando Blunt. So like that is 
significant, man. That is not, and those are players you want, right? Like yeah. the, 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 they are committed to you. So that's kind of the, yeah, the balancing act I'm trying to strike here as we discuss this. Like some really good things did occur through the entire recruiting cycle. You have still improved. Uh, Mike Norvell's staff can develop at an elite rate. They can scheme at an elite rate. Like that, those are, that's proven. There is quantifiable like evidence of that. You're on a 19 game winning streak. I think the angst man comes from people thinking that that would have bought you a little bit more on the recruiting trail, that this, the questions that we've had about some of these people, some of these coaches on staff as recruiters, that some of it would have gotten resolved um, based on the on-field results. And it did to some extent, uh, but not anywhere near to the ability that people would have liked it to. Yeah. Early signing days become the new signing day. So I look at it as a combination of a calendar and that calendar is not, you know, six months, 12 months, it's really usually a couple of years in recruiting, especially when you have a staff that's established and has been at a place as the staff largely has as a group now for four years. And FSU's ability to recruit this bunch really began during a dreadful season three seasons ago. They laid some really good groundwork with some of the guys that were the backbone of this class. Their ability to recruit at a higher level began with last season's success, especially on the back half and the winning of the bowl game against OU and finishing with 10 wins. I think that put them in a position where they they legitimately could have conversations with guys about proof of concept, things going in the right direction, so on and so forth. And then this year, obviously, was marvelous. 13-0, and 0, ACC champions. Everything in front of you was accomplished. And, you know, in the end, you didn't get what you were hoping for, a college football playoff bid. But everything else was achieved by FSU. Everything within their control, they did at a high level. So from a recruiting standpoint, you expect that to impact recruiting in a positive manner. I think it's fair to say it did. I, despite the shortcomings of yesterday, you signed a top 10 class. You signed a excellent quarterback, two really good backs, four good receivers, a top tier tight end who's probably the best in the class. Four offensive linemen should help you. They have good size. They're something. Defensively, you really like the secondary class. He's behind a high level kicker. Front seven recruiting, it just isn't there. You sign two linebackers you like, but that position probably needs more. And truthfully, that's a portal position. So I'm just going to move on from that. Yes, it needs to be recruited better. I'm not shuffling it away. But at the end of the day, linebacker for discussion of next season is going to be based on what they do via portal. Long term, what they're doing up front, defensive line, high school recruiting, I don't think is beneficial to them in the sense of like they got to lean on the portal too much. Um, And I'm a person that just believes it's a talent acquisition business. You want to get to 85. You want to have a really good roster in August. What my problem with yesterday was more than anything is that like for you to get to where you want to get long term with sustainability, mm-hmm. you got to win more than you lose. And yesterday was a rough day for that with regards to guys that they invested a ton of time and effort into. You know, I don't like softening the landing on losing a KJ board. Yes, it stinks. You battled Georgia and Auburn for that kid, among others earlier on, but especially down the stretch, Georgia and Auburn. And you lost to Georgia in the end. And that stinks. Georgia is a team that's where you want to get to. And KJ Bolden is the kind of guy that helps you get there. So don't soften it. It is what it is. It stinks. Yeah. Jeremiah Smith, you fought your backside off for that one. Yeah. He stuck with the school he'd been committed to for, at this point, 12 months. And you lost. But, like, you fought the battle there. LJ McCray, yeah, we all know where I feel, how I feel about that. But, like, you weren't in a position. The thing is, at some point, you got to win more of those than you lose. That's all I'm going to get at. It's that, like, you can't keep falling back on the portal. Because Even at a, some point, the portal is not going to give you everything you need. It is beneficial to win in all facets. You need to win the portal, yes. And FSU has been really good at that, this cycle to be determined. But prior to this cycle, been really good at that as a program the last couple of years. But you also got to win in high school recruiting. And they did a much better job recruiting high school than they ever have in their time in Tallahassee. And they deserve credit for that. But there are still shortcomings that are a concerning trend. And the way yesterday played out, I just don't think – it's good when you've had multiple repeats of a similar event on the same day. It's a day that way too much weight is put on. Cause again, it's a multi-year process to get to that day, but that day carries weight. The day and everybody, everybody writes about winners and losers. And it's not because of the class you signed. It's because of what you did on that day. Yeah. It, again, the balance is like, this is years in the making. I agree with that. That is totally true. I'm not, that is not lost on me. But it shifts like the, 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 
outlook of your roster, not just the perception, which like, yeah, we're all going to look at the rankings and coaches can say they don't give a crap on that. Good. They shouldn't. Like you don't need to be Jimbo Fisher recruiting guys because our network or another network has a guy's a five-star and you want them. Like, but they wanted guys of that name. And that they is, yeah, that, they want LJ McCray. They want Jeremiah Smith. They want Armando Blunt. All highly thought of top 30 type guys. And mo- most of them are top 10 guys. And you're not going to win all those. Those are expensive battles or difficult battles. And you're competing with the best of the best in recruiting. So you're not going to win them all. The issue for FSU is once they have put themselves in position to win, KJ Bolden, Travis Hunters, Keldrick Falks, they've lost in the end. Mm-hmm. And at some point, the odds got to break in their favor where they got to win more than they lose on those. And I know people will come back and say, well, they, they kept Charles Lester away from Colorado. Yes, that's true. You know, they, they staved off Georgia making supposedly a late run at Luke Cromanhawk. I say supposedly, cause I don't know that for a fact, but I believe Zach and him had a conversation about that. And oh, yes, yeah, they the did. And those are good that. things. Like those are good things. I'm not dismissive of those. My thing is for FSU to take the next step. They have to take the next step in recruiting high school. And they started to do that this year. They did take a step forward. I think you wrote that basically in your perspective and nuance piece last evening, Brendan. But like there's still work to be done. I guess it's the best way I can put it. And the concern is that the things that have happened repeatedly, Keep like, happening. are they being addressed to not continue to happen? So I guess is where I stand on that. Let's keep a put a pin in that, please. What you just said. Remember what you just said about trends, because I think that's where the next point of the conversation goes. I, I think, to me, the most frustrating part of yesterday, and then the totality of the class and how the cycle went, uh, beyond just the the trends, and we're going to talk about that, is college football, and maybe it's changing a little bit in the NIL and transfer portal era. But it's so much about windows. You have opportunities. Mm-hmm. And we talk about this like when when Dan Mullen was at, at Florida and both Miami and Florida State were down simultaneously. He did not take advantage to the extent he needed of that window of your in-state rivals doing poorly to have dominant recruiting classes. They were top 10-ish. And it's, he, he threw some fun shade out yesterday at Billy Napier, and that, that, was, that was humorous. I enjoyed Wishing it. he had those facilities. Yeah. It, but like the ultimate point was like he was not an elite recruiter at a program that affords you the luxury to be elite or at least in that conversation year over year and over a, a you know, certain period of time. Like it's not Ohio state. It's not Georgia. It's not Alabama, but it should be in that next year and Florida state too. Uh, and so that's, you know, as we talk about windows, when you talk about building a sustainable powerhouse, a juggernaut, a, a potential dynasty, when Florida state was winning 20 something games in a row under Jimbo Fisher and winning the national title and making the college football invitational uh, FSU was dominating in-state recruiting. And its foes, Miami and Florida, were, were down simultaneously. Yeah, FSU's rise came with Florida's downfall. Yeah. And that and you look at like any time where there's like these crazy amount of like you know draft pick success and, and pro talent like factory turnouts like USC back in the, the 2000s like it coincides with the people around you sucking. It's because you are <laughs> because you are putting your foot on their neck when they're down and from a talent acquisition perspective which that's what we cover chris that's what where our bread is buttered that is what our perspective is and it is wholly important and every football coach knows that fsu had a chance i think with a 19 game win streak went going 10 wins last year wire to wire this year uh undefeated to take take a step forward to separating itself from a talent acquisition perspective against Miami and Florida. Where's Florida ranked right now? Class-wise? Yeah. And they had they had a – this is them ending the year on what, a five-game losing streak and having uh, an exodus from a class that was kind of built on a house of cards. We, we thought that at the Florida time. settled in at 15. So you build some ground there, and they were able to withhold uh, – five-star quarterback and a five-star pass rusher. So they got guys at like premium players at premium positions. They also uh, did lose a bunch down the stretch. And they, they did. They yes. were swinging similar waters as some of the stuff that happened here. Miami, which will always be a good recruiting program with Mario Cristobal. That is, a, that's a fact. There's history to it. He's also a sucky ass game coach. And that is also proven. So we'll see what he does. I don't know if I should have said it that way. We'll see what he does with that talent, but they are fully invested in the talent acquisition game. 
and they are fully invested in just recruiting at a high level and exerting a ton of energy to that. And yeah, Miami, Miami, Miami has a Ford. Well, Ford uh, in the overall, it's Ford. And in the prep class, third. But they also have 27 yeah. prep players. Yeah. Um, so their neighbors are Georgia obviously finished one and had a spectacular class capped off by the flipping of Bolden there at the end and really strong finish with four or five stars. Bama, Texas, and Miami, Oregon, Ohio State, followed by Auburn, Notre Dame, Oklahoma, and FSU. That's your top 10 overall. Um, point being, if you finish on half of the battles that you were you know, in position to potentially win, that you either finish second or third and regardless, like the, out, the outlook of this roster, we were talking about like recruiting at this high of a level, like a couple players makes a ma- massive difference. Yeah. The difference between a top five class and a top 10, which for perspective, like the teams that accumulate top five classes year after year are the Georgias, the Alabama, the Ohio States, the teams that are consistently winning double digit games. Not to say that you can't put that all together. Uh, you can't win. Florida State has won double digit games each of the last two years. It contended to, should be in, in playing for national championship. They're not. And that's a bunch of bull crap. Regardless, like you can get to a perspective where you're competing at a really high level without having elite recruiting. but to have a legitimate chance at winning all year after year, the recruiting has to be top five-ish. Then the other side of that coin is also when you miss on a Jeremiah Smith, it puts a strain on you because you now have to definitely go to portal and get a guy who you believe is kind of an instant impact wide receiver more than likely. When you miss on a KJ Bolden who was committed to you, it puts a strain on you because now you probably do need to go get another safety in the portal. And we saw how that played out last year in the late window where it did not go well for FSU and they had to work around it this past season. So it's just sort of a, it's a numbers game in the end and there's value to the portal, but the portal is also a, you know, non-determined amount of folks. You don't know who is definitely going to be in the portal and who's going to be available to you. You do know when you're recruiting the high school ranks and investing the time, that it takes in recruiting those as FSU did with the four primary targets we've discussed kind of at length here, that those guys may not help you year one, might be reserve types year one, but they are guys you believe can be vital pieces of what your ultimate goal here is year over year. When you miss on that, then, well, the number shifts to because of the fact that the high school ranks are very much wiped out now by an early signing day where you have to go portal. And that's a little bit more of a lottery or a roulette versus a, determined factor like FSU determined they loved KJ Bolden offered him extremely early recruited the heck out of him you know and built up the idea of we're going to bring him and some of these other guys in for late visits and close it out and they didn't close it out and so now they put more strain on themselves in working towards 85 building the roster as they want to that you know to this point in time as a program the last couple years they've done a good job of getting to that 85 (laughs) and having the guys they want but, you know, you're, you're playing with fire a bit. And yeah. that that's probably ultimately where I just I worry a little bit that, you know, as we look towards next year and them figuring out their 85 and putting a roster together, there are currently voids, holes, needs that they definitely have that they could have addressed to some degree with success yesterday that they did not, that now there's a strain put upon them to go work the portal and try to find success there. And the portal just simply hasn't been as giving or successful for FSU this cycle as we saw in past years. And I think I some think, of its aggressiveness and things of that yeah, sort, I think they that's a whole nother discussion. I think real quick, I think they mismanaged some of the early portal stuff and uh, some of us banking on getting players who you did not get yesterday. Uh, and some of it was just not having a great idea of what the market was going to yeah. be. Um, and context is like FSU announced on signing day, early signing period last year, six or seven transfers. You have right one now, committed have right one, now. Marvin Jones one, Jr. And he's committed. an important one. He will help him out of position of yeah. need, but they probably still need an edge. They need another interior guy. They certainly need a linebacker. They probably need a safety. We know they're in the market for a quarterback, and they've positioned themselves well at quarterback. We've had lengthy discussions on Cam Ward and DJU with regards to that. And Offensively, they, they're probably going to have to go get a receiver too because obviously still, you're losing your top two in Johnny and Keon. And while you like the room and you like guys you have in it, you still need that safety net of we believe this guy's a little bit more further along, capable of doing this. Definitely a too deep guy that will help us if this younger guy elevates, and that's fantastic. That means we have a more abundance of weapons. But that that's a precarious situation that you put yourself in as you kind of play this game. And everybody's playing. I, I, I'm not trying to soften, again, not trying to soften what happened at FSU. 
everybody is dealing with this. This isn't an FSU only problem. But FSU had things that could have been solutions yesterday that they didn't come away with. And that's kind of how I came out of yesterday. I thought yesterday all in all was actually a success for FSU. And I know that's going to piss some people off. But they did a really good job at a variety of positions. And they got some excellent high school players who should help them long term, who they wholeheartedly believe in. And a lot of guys who have been committed to this program for a long time who are also really good players, i.e. Cam Davis, i.e. Luke Cromenhoff, um, and others. But, like, there were things they could have done to make yesterday a very special moment for this program and essentially another jewel in the crown, and it just did not ultimately play out that way. Yeah, again, really good potential for elite. And we are covering a program that has aspirations of being elite. And so that's the prism that we are now, like, the rebuild process is done. It's built, and it has been done for a couple of years. You're now trying to sustain something really special for a prolonged period of time. And so that, that's how we're judging it, and that's how we're evaluating it. Uh, to the point of the transfer portal stuff, like quarterback still needs to be figured out. I think I mean, I think they'll probably get that figured out in the next few days, and it's either going to be Cameron Ward or to be DJU, Uyangalale. It'll be one or the other. And Look at you, knocking that one. I have gotten very good it. at it. Um, Roll that tongue. I good show. Uh, I I'm uh, getting very uh very used to say because I've been saying it a lot. So I said that with confidence, said it with my chest. But you still have you still have holes that you have to fill on this roster, and you're gonna have to turn to the transfer portal. The issue now is, frankly, it gets more expensive. Yeah, because 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 you weren't aggressive early on, and that was a calculation was to be methodical with it, and so you either have to go back to try to sway players who've already committed elsewhere but have not enrolled to come play for you and that's it's going to be more costly to do that or you're going to have to try to convince players and do back channel stuff and, and see who enters the portal uh and yeah there is to your point chris a deficiency of like players at, of quality that could help florida State out at some of these positions that are needs so you're going to have to pay a premium to make it happen now Price gouging tells us that desperation drives up the price. And that is even like in the context of internal. We'll get into that, but like trying to retain players who might be wanting to enter the transfer portal, like that that they become bigger priorities if you don't nail like positions of need and and they have more leverage now. This is all stuff that like there's there's a ripple effect now. It's almost like it's a sport where they should be paid employees with a salary cap, but hey, I digress. And people on the board, rightfully so, want transparency of like, well, what's this player cost? And, you know, what is our collective giving? What is the battles in giving here to retain this player? Or what is the, you know, what is Ohio State play, paying to get Jeremiah Smith? Like, it would be great if it was all like, think about how crazy it is that we are covering the sport where you're talking about transit transactions of six figures over and over again, and sometimes seven figures, oftentimes seven figures. And we don't know what that exact number is, though. And the the players negotiating for it and the teams bargaining for it, none of them actually know what other people are doing. Yeah, and telephone game happens where one kid's figure turned into a very different figure by the time it reaches somebody else. And that impacts market inflation and all those things. To the point, going back to one of the last things I want to talk about uh, with signing day, to the point of trends. I'm just going to list them off, Chris, if you want to push back on any. Feel free if you want to add, uh, you want to elaborate on any, feel free. Uh, this is not me trying to be like, take personal digs at people. People are like, who do you want to fire? So, like, that's not what I'm getting at here. But I am evaluating talent acquisition, part of this process uh, amongst coaches who are paid handsomely to be public figures and to be able to take some brunt of criticism and to do an effective job recruiting as well as developing, as well as managing personnel. There's a lot that college coaches have to do. It's a difficult job. Um, but if we want to talk about trends and we want to put the like light on FSU being, again, elite in talent acquisition, which we think they're capable of being, uh, these are trends that have occurred. Trend number one, your top players and largely your top defensive players that are committed flipping. That's three years in a row now. That is a trend. Yeah. It is undeniable. Trend number two, we want to talk about defensive end recruiting because – the numbers are the numbers. You have signed one, two, three, four, five, six prep players, including Jaden Jones, who is JUCO, and that uh, since the 2021 cycle. The average grade of those high school prospects is an 89.2. So that's a 
you know, fringe three, four star. The decommitments you have suffered at that position in the same span. And I'm going to include Trevion Williams in this because he's a defensive end, defensive tackle guy. He's kind of turned into defensive tackle, but uh, there's going to be five of them. Keldrick Falk, Gabe Harris, Armando Blunt, Nigel Kelly, Trevion Williams. Five of them. So almost as many decommitments as players who have signed with the other position group. The average grade for that group, a 96. Point yeah. two. Like that yeah, is a ma- and, like, that's massive. Go ahead. So I, I think at the end, it's a position where at some point you have to recruit the in-between better than you are. You're getting guys who are developmental types who you like, and you're also recruiting very high-level guys who you think can be major impact players relatively early in their career. Keldrick Falk went to Auburn and had some success as a freshman, for example. Um, I think you got to get better at knowing you have that next guy up. You, you can't let the Armando Blunt situation play out. You can't rely on a guy like LJ McCray where it had trended away from you for a long time and not have the next guy up. And, you know, Amari Williams you bring in, but you don't get him to sign early. I don't know if that's a miscalculation or what, but, you know. Oh, they wanted him what, to sign early. That is a miscalculation. Okay. Uh, that, we, don't sugar, means, we don't have to sugarcoat it. That That is what uh, we know that. You bump the visit of Lugard, and truthfully, I don't know specifically why they bumped that visit. I don't know if they believed he was wrapped up to Michigan, if they did because they were bringing Amari Williams in. I they don't thought know they had reason. They thought they had better players they could attain. But, like, my reason. thing is sometimes you throw numbers at the problem, and you hope you have a problem to figure out instead of presuming you just don't need to do that. And I think there's – too much lukewarmness and selectiveness going on with how they pursue guys at that position. And that includes portal targets. So that's, but on the flip side, they've had success there. So they like can it's, develop it's a the really hell out of thing. it. It is a totality thing. It's like they could develop the hell out. Like Patrick Payton was not a coveted recruit. They flipped him from Nebraska and but, they turned him into know, an all ACC caliber defensive end. You're losing Jared. And at this point, it seems like you're retaining Patrick, though that feels uneasy to say to a degree. But at this point, he intends to be here to the best of our knowledge. But if you were to lose him, like you're in a real pickle. Like it, that room is evacuated of town. And that's because of the fact that you kind of, for lack of a better term, had to band-aid it via the portal yeah. and not really stockpiled it with developmental talent. I like Byron Turner, but I don't know if he's a starter quality guy. Gilbert Edmond feels sort of like a portal miss to this point in time. We'll see if he develops further. One of the one of the few you can say that about. Yes. Like they, and yes. they and they brought By, Byron or excuse me, I must say Byron Vaughn's. He's your fourth DN right now, and he's fine yeah. as that. I just don't know if there's a level. But you of you that brought Gilbert Edmond in largely, and you prioritized him because he was going to be a two-year player for you because you were grooming him to be the Jared Verse heir. And your recruiting tells me that you're probably like, that's not what he's developed into for you. So, and this is all in the context of like, they develop it. Well, we're talking about maximization and and you have a program that has maximized like the development aspect of defensive end. You took Jermaine Johnson Turn him into a featured player and a first-round pick. You took Jared Verse, and you're turning him into a first-round pick and a featured player. Took Patrick Payton, lightly recruited, turn him into all-ACC defensive uh, player or rookie of the year. Like, you you said it well, I think, uh, a week or two ago, Chris. Like, there, there are these, these, all these, like, mounting signs of evidence that like, you can come to Florida State and have a great career as a defensive end and make yourself a lot of money. Quote-unquote, Chris Nee it feels like it's more difficult than it needs to be sometimes. And I think that's kind of yeah, where like that, that you, trend is at. You would hope there'd be a return on the success you've had, both on the field as a team as a whole, but also at that position. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're a little bit in a precarious position. And I like Marvin Jones Jr. I think he's a good addition. I, he's a kid that, you know, they absolutely loved out of high school. And I think they be- still believe he's going to develop in what they believed he was going to be two years ago when they recruited him the initial time. But again, yep. like, you haven't put yourself in a position where you feel like there's a sure thing as the next guy up for you at that spot. I guess that's the best way to frame that. Yeah, it, there's room for it to be better, and that's that's the context again. Like that, that's all I'm saying on that uh, linebacker recruiting. You touched on Chris. Uh, I think they like both the. I think they like uh, Jaden Parrish. And I Tamir think they like, Hickman, Hickman, they yeah. like both of them, yeah. and, and both of them have fun film. Like there's those could end up being yeah. really good evaluations. But you're at Florida State, and I was like, what? 
recruitment at linebacker have you won out that you were like, yes, you want to go get this elite prospect, and you had to go and beat someone to get that prospect? Blake Nicholson's I, one that comes to mind for me. You beat and that was yeah, and that was and done others. through an, a like a variety of people who had connections and stuff. That was well done. That's fine for like it to be a total like staff effort. And Randy Shannon's the linebackers coach. He can develop. And he works really well with Adam Fuller and he had a top 10 defense. So again, the context is like people look at signing day stuff and talent acquisition. It's super important. There's also good stuff happening. That's the, the balance of this. But can it be better? Can you be acquiring yeah, a, a better a better caliber of talent more frequently? And the answer, Chris, is yeah, you can. Okay. Plain and simple. And you're you're in a situation this year where you're losing two guys who are steadfast, consistent pros for the last two years in Kalen Deloach and Tatum Bethune and a sturdy, reliable depth piece in DJ Lundy who opted to go to Portal. And you're now going to basically force into duty the trio of Justin Cryer, who's been here since August, Blake Nicholson, and Omar Graham. And while I like all three of those young men and think they're fully capable of being contributors in that room. They do too. Like, you know, that, I don't know. I feel like you're you're rushing to the future with those three is, I think, probably the best way I can frame it. Again, it's a position where you're allowed to kind of stalk in the middle, and I think they failed to do that to this point. Now, again, Portal, you can go out, get one guy at that spot, and you have a top four with that one guy being your one and those next three being the next three up. You probably feel a little bit better about it. You probably feel pretty good about it, but you got to go and do that. Yeah. Yeah. I there, Again, it's it's – it's like a hardcore selectiveness at that position. I don't get it. Again, recruit more than you need and figure it out in the end when you have viable options instead of basically limiting yourself. The fact that they didn't, and I, I know I'm getting stuck on one guy, but JDJ jumps in the portal and it's like they just didn't want to entertain it. And he's an all SEC level linebacker potentially. Why not? Who? That's not who, who committed to Kentucky. Yeah, and Mark Stoops knows a thing or two about defense. It probably it probably wouldn't be yeah, it probably wouldn't have been a whole lot more. Uh, it probably wouldn't have been as difficult to go ahead and recruit him as it would have been to retain DJ Lundy. Like I don't think there would have been a huge difference in the two in terms of like the effort that would have been put in. Now DJ Lundy's in the portal. The linebacker market in the transfer portal is not very good, and it's probably part of the reason Lundy went in. Yeah, I'm sure. And we'll see. Like, and he was offered a really good amount to be retained by by Florida State, and he wanted to go and test even more. So, I'm skeptical whether that happens or not. But it, it, it his prerogative. Um, and then the last part of it is like the trends is like, and I think this all falls into like what we've seen on signing days occur, which is some blindsidedness, some things that you maybe expected or thought could happen, but ultimately, like you get in these high leverage recruitments. Uh, I think FSU gets caught off guard too often. Um, KJ Bolden said, and I have a hard time, honestly, being transparent, taking him at his word right now, but he said that he made this decision three weeks ago. And that family had Florida State, had Georgia, and had Auburn all feeling various levels of confidence yesterday. And they had them all feeling that way in August, too. But my point being is is that's a one-off. Multiple years, like the Travis Hunter thing, which catastrophic for Florida State in that moment and just doesn't happen like that very often uh, to that extent, that nationally. But, like, you were caught off guard by that. The Armando Blunt stuff was, like, happening for weeks on end. And Zach's screaming from the mountaintop trying to warn people that it's, that it's happening. Yeah, and I Zach think was when kind he showed of, up Zach, to the game cheering in yeah. the crowd at uh, Hard Rock Stadium. Is that what it's called yeah. these days? Um, Landshark Stadium, whatever we call it these days. I don't know. I'm a Dolphins fan, but I can't remember. Um yeah, that, I remember that being kind of the tone setter, and it seemingly got weirder and weirder down the stretch. To, to be fair, Zach was also screaming about KJ Bolden for about a month or so. Him and I would have arguing matches. Not Zach likes to scream, though, to be honest. And that but, is part yeah, of it, right, is just right. the chicken little of them. But but the the process is what we're judging it on as much as results of like, there are, I think, are channels and avenues to get more and better information and to be willing to accept, like, hey, something's not trending well to us. We need to have backup options all ready to go. And that's, yeah, been, and a year, I, I, that's been a year-after-year year issue to me. The backup options comment is where I kind of sit. Is like, you're allowed to be in love with somebody. 
-hmm. but in a talent acquisition business, make sure there's also somebody you like enough that you think can help you and can be good for you. And at worst is a good baseline player for you and go get that. Because if you don't, then you put a strain on yourself to get to 85 with quality where you have to rely on a portal. And yes, FSU has been good at the portal. We pump that as much as anybody under the sun. But at some point, there's a belief, at least in my heart, that FSU and others just won't have the same success. You can only be so invested year over year in the portal. I mean, look at Old Miss this offseason. They're ultra invested in the portal. They feel a hell of a lot like who? Oh, FSU last year. Last year. Why? Because yeah. their schedule sets up for them to have success. It makes sense for them to do what they're doing. I, I don't think that's a repetitive action that you can achieve in a day and age where collect those finances and all of that plays such a pivotal role in everything you're trying to accomplish. Agree. Um, so those are things that we now monitor and see, like, do they get built on? Do they improve? Do they keep happening? And that's all we can do, right? Like, that's all that I think, like, as us as people who, who survey and cover this program. I will say, I, I hope fans and us alike don't diminish what FSU did get yesterday because mm-hmm. of what they didn't get. Agreed. And I feel like that happened at a high level yesterday. They got a lot of really good dudes. They got a lot of good pieces and a lot of guys they like. They're I'm still excited. Uh, Chris, I'm legitimately excited. Like Mike Norvell has never had this level of pure raw clay to like yeah. mold. I, I like their offensive class as a whole. And yes, they need another receiver. But that was true no matter what. Jeremiah Smith was the only guy that would satisfy the need at receiver. So, like, I don't have an issue with the backup idea at receiver. It's more on defense where you needed numbers and need to do something about where I have more of an issue with the backup number idea. And I like the secondary class despite the loss of Bolden. Bolden would have made that an exquisite secondary class. And there's but. some other things we can get into the weeds on, and it, there will be a time. I think Zach and I, and Chris, you're more than welcome to, but we, we are planning to do, like, a like – a, behind the scenes of of this class and this cycle and like we will get into the weeds even more than than what we've done here um but it is still again in the context of the top 10 class nationally so real quick sinone good sorry i thought you were done with no i was rambling go ahead portal wise lay it out real quick for people where do we think they go number wise position by position i'll give you a position you tell me quarterback one and hopefully you have some resolution to that. I hate, know you hate timelines, but like if you don't have it done by the weekend, I think you start getting a little. I'd start getting antsy at that point. One. Yeah, and we've worked with the belief that Cam Ward's working in a more condensed timeline than DJU's basically willing to have. So you're allowed to allow Cam to play out, but yeah. at some point you, you got to ask a question. FSU, um, Miami, maybe there's a mystery suitor we don't know about in the NFL are, are basically the options for his camp right yeah, now. Yeah, I see people still mentioning Ohio State with Cam Ward, but like we've so never Ryan, directly we've never, been told that. My understanding is Ryan Day is working very quietly uh, to select a transfer quarterback and bring them in, and he's doing it by himself. Like this isn't a, him expanding it to you know, offensive staff, quarterback, whatever. It's 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 him. It's and, and so – that just opens up to you don't know who it is. Running back, mm, 0.5. I think if you find a good if you find a good player, uh, you would because you're gonna have you're gonna have. Well, yeah, I don't want it. We don't need to get in the weeds. We're doing this quickly. I think I think it 1.1 or 0. 0.5. 0. 0.1 would be really really low. But yeah, I agree with you. I, I think it's like a if if the dude makes too much sense to say no. Yeah. You go after them, but I don't think they're in a rush. They really like Dancy. They really like Davis. They like what that room is. They're high on Kaziah Holmes and believe he can be, elevate himself in that Kaziah room. Kaziah Holmes looks L- great, great in practice, by the way. Uh, LT's um, coming back. So you got pieces in that room. You got some younger guys, too, that are already there. Uh, wide receiver is one. Um, one, if it's a, a higher than the .5, but kind of similar logic for running back. You like Hakeem Williams. You like Dustin Hill. Your veterans like Kentron Portier and Ja'Kai Douglas, Deuce Span, uh, Darren Williamson, all expected back right now. Uh, like you have enough to where that should be a, a, a solid group, especially the younger pieces develop. But uh, you lose two bona fide like NFL type of talents, and if you can go ahead and secure one one more to have you know, for twenty twenty four, you'll you'll do it. Yeah, I think it's a one A type situation where you want a guy who can be the top guy on your depth chart at that position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, somebody on par with what you did last cycle with Keon Coleman. Uh, tight end, I don't think right now the intention is to pursue one. I think they want to go into spring, see what they have in that room. They believe Landon Thomas is a plug-and-play guy who can help them immediately. Yeah. 
I'd be pursuing and, one because it's a good market, but yeah, I, I I think you're informed on that, Chris, to know that's I, probably I, where they're going. I think there's a degree of they obviously have Morlock expected back and then Landon Thomas, so that's sort of your one-two punch, but I think they want to see what they have in the others in that room, so we're talking Jackson West, Brian Courtney, uh, Jarrell Powers. Am I forgetting anyone? I think that's it right now. They went from yeah. having like a million of them on the roster to, to five. So I, I think there's a tick up in the spring. They want to kind of get a feel for who are these guys, what are they are, and believe there is probably a market to find a guy who would essentially equate to a 2-3 type if they needed to go get it in that room after the spring. Uh, that's a market that, if I recall correctly, last spring there was actually a good amount of like mid-tier options. Not Jaheim Bells necessarily, but guys that can still help you. O-line, I, you know, maybe one or two. They went after Carter Smith, so that kind of lends itself to, yes, their interest in that market. We expect a good bit of the starting O-line back based on what we know right now. Yeah, Darius um, Washington, Maurice Smith, Jeremiah Byers, probable. Um, yeah, I think four or five guys, probably yeah. the, like familiar names. But from a depth standpoint, I think they would like to have at least one, maybe two guys out push them, probably one who could play tackle, one who could play interior for them. Mm-hmm. Um Ty Hilton's a guy I think they want to groove into center. And I think center is a position where they really want to do figure out what's next for them. As a They do love Andre Otto. Um, yes. And they think he didn't do a lot of center stuff this year, but I think the spring will be an opportunity for him to get a look there. D-tackle. D-tackle is interesting. It's in, I, I think one. Um, but it's interesting because there's a lot of like up in the air right now. I mean, Fabian Lovett, Braden Fisk will, will move on. They exhaust their eligibility. Right. Dennis Briggs, uh, Zachra has reported, I can confirm this as well, like intends to apply for a waiver. And that would be a waiver kind of like what Demetri Emanuel got last year. Um, so, you know, probably coin flip whether he, he he finds out or not. But so, yeah, that's a balancing act. Malcolm Ray entered the transfer portal officially. Uh, my understanding is he would have, like, he's left on good terms to be able to come back. Um, but that's a contributor who had over 100 snaps. Uh, Josh Farmer has declared intentions through actions and talking to people that he will enter the transfer portal. That is factual. That is not up to debate. I have many thought on that, but we don't have time for, for that right now. But you know, right now he's on the roster. He's still with and the program right now. He is not um, in the portal as he is not in the portal clear at, at, the, at this time. Um, so, you know, but yeah, that's TBD. Um, Daryl Jackson, uh, you, but so my, my point being is like we're talking about a handful of, of players, uh, Daniel Lyons, uh, they, they like KJ Sampson a good deal. Yeah. Um, but you have, you have some of your upper echelon guys on the roster that could be there in 2024 are kind of TBD. So I would say one, and it's a position you can never have too many guys of. Is, if you can find it, I, I think that makes sense. Yeah, and Odell has always liked a rotation of ballpark about six. I think Adam Fuller is a guy that also falls into that ballpark of that number at that position. Mm-hmm. It's a position where they want their guys to really exert themselves, but when you're a big body like that and you're getting the crap beat out of you in the trenches, you need to have the ability to rotate and bring in fresh bodies. That's something that FSU did fantastically this past season. I think they would like to continue. Edge uh, added Marvin Jones Jr. to this mix. Added D.D. Holmes via the high school ranks. I don't know how much D.D. helps you in year one, but he is a kid they do like a lot. Losing Jared Verse for sure. At this point, Patrick Payton remains. He's a guy that you would pencil in as a starter for sure right now. So I still think it's probably a spot where, one, I think Brendan would agree with me there. I think two, if you can get it. One because half, of maybe. fear of losing another one or just because you think you need to stockpile numbers at this point? I would stockpile numbers at this point. If you can get a younger guy who's a multi-year player and a veteran, like I would, like uh, five is the number you want to have. I asked JP about this yesterday. Like Five is the number ideally you have ready to go in a game. And they use primarily four, but I think five is your All optimal right. that you would have ready to play. Who are the who are the five as of right now? Let's include that. Say Patrick, Marvin Patrick Payton, yep. Marvin Jones Jr., Byron Turner, Gilbert Edmund, Jaden Jones. I think that would be your top five, right? So you add one more to maybe if Jaden Jones Lamont is Green still Jr. Jr. is a younger one there. Aaron Hester, who's been banged up most of his career, is another one that falls into that position. I don't know that you include them in that count right now. Yeah. Yeah, so I, you know. I think if you can get one more, you you will you will certainly attempt to get one more with Patrick Payton being kind of up in the air. Um, I would lean towards towards two, and I think that helps you. Um, if if you you're never going to have too many pass rushers, 
You know what I mean? Like that's that's a position if you end up over investing in it and you have room for it and you have the ability to make it work, you, you try to do it. Linebacker, front line guy. Definitely you have to, you have to get a starter at this point. You've lost DJ Lundy unless you bring like even if they brought even if they retained DJ Lundy, we thought it might be a position they look at. You have to get at least one. Secondary, I think it becomes one because of the loss of Bolden in the class. I think he's a guy they believe would be a definite two deep contributor for them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think you want one. a uh, someone who you could say he's either like a, I think you'd want a hybrid guy to fill that, right? You either want a nickel kind or of like pack a couple or, years ago. Mm, more like either um, like a Jamie maybe a Robinson. better version, but a guy who's got some versatility and experience. I think a Jamie Robinson where he can play safety or nickel or a Jarian Jones where he can play nickel or outside corner. I think that type of like starting cal- – like if you're going to take one, either get someone with a ton of upside who's a younger player to supplement you know, not getting K.J. Bolden and having – as a multi-year guy when you look down the road or you get a one-year plug-and-play like surefire starter. Uh, Fentrell Cypress, like we don't know if he's coming back or not. So like right. yeah, I, th- I think there's a potential need there even with the really good – like I like Kai Bates a lot. I like Jamari Howard. These are – you know, true freshman. I don't know what you can expect from them one way or the other, uh, right off the yeah. bat. At this point, I don't think they look at a specialist. So good times. Um, yeah. So this has been been an hour podcast. There's a lot happening. I don't think any news is broken other than Keon Coleman uh report that he's going pro and LT Lawrence O'Philly being retained. FSU is still in the ACC, as far as I know. Uh, the class is still ninth, the quarterback is not committed. Yeah, so <laughs> For Chris Nee, I'm Brendan Snow. who has been on the bench. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Fun times coming up here in the next few days, I guess. We'll see.